is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Wouldn't it be great if Congress could do something about prescription drug costs and climate change at the same time? Two big problems that continue to loom over the country. Well, it did. Senate Democrats reached a deal with fellow Democrat Joe Manchin on a big spending bill that promises to help those on Medicare pay less for drugs, as well as invest in slowing climate change. We will go in depth into whether this will all, you know, work. Russia launches a missile attack around Kiev. We look into whether Russia is now changing its war strategy. It occurs to me we could have stopped that first sentence just a few words in. Wouldn't it be great if Congress would do something? And (laughs) just period. Uh, Recession. What is it? Are we in one? Depends on who you ask. So we'll try to figure it out. There's a plastic surgery procedure gaining popularity thanks to celebrities, influencers, but it's very dangerous. Could be deadly. New lawsuit claims a Sesame Street theme park. Not friendly and not as wholesome as you might think. Racial discrimination. That's what alleged in this suit. And the indoor mask mandates, whether it could come back to L.A. County, we should get an answer today. We start, though, with the massive spending plan in Congress and how it's going to impact Medicare. Juliette Kubansky is deputy director of the program on Medicare policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Juliette, thanks for being with us. This measure, if it passes Congress, uh, which I, I presume it now will with Manchin being on board and with the president uh, obviously going to sign it, uh, why is it important that it would allow for the first time the government, Medicare, to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies the price of prescription drugs? Right. As you know, this is groundbreaking in that right now Medicare is prohibited from being involved in drug price negotiations under the Part D program, which is the drug benefit for people with Medicare. Um, So this would, for the first time, give the Secretary of the Health and Human Services Department the authority to be involved in those drug price negotiations. And there is uh, a tremendous amount of savings that would be available to the Medicare program which would eventually pass down to Medicare beneficiaries in the form of lower out-of-pocket costs. I heard the word eventually. Um, How long to really translate into, like, meaningful savings? Well, this um, negotiated prices would take effect initially in 2025 for 10 Part D drugs. That probably doesn't sound like a large number. And it's not really a large number of drugs in terms of the total number of drugs that are out there on the market. But we are talking about some of the most expensive drugs to the Medicare program. And over time, the number of drugs that would be negotiated would grow. So while in the next year or two, Medicare beneficiaries aren't going to see any savings from this particular provision of the reconciliation bill, they will see savings in the future. And am I also, I'm sorry, I was going to ask, uh, other than the ability for Medicare to negotiate uh, the price of drugs, am I also correct that this measure, uh, if it becomes law, would put a cap for the first time uh, on, I think it's like $2,000 a year that senior citizens would have to pony up for prescription drugs? Yes. And that is um, expected to be one of the more beneficial uh, provisions of this legislation from the perspective of Medicare beneficiaries who have really high out-of-pocket drug costs right now, they stand to see significant savings from that $2,000 cap, which doesn't exist in the Medicare Part D program right now. 
beneficiaries who need really expensive medications or who take a lot of medications can be on the hook for thousands of dollars in out-of-pocket spending every year. So this $2,000 cap on out-of-pocket spending, which will take effect in 2025, um, is expected to um, deliver you know, tremendous savings um, and will provide real cost relief for people on Medicare. Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy, Kaiser Family Foundation. Juliet, thank you so much. Back to that big spending package in Congress. It's going to provide $369 billion to fight climate change and provide for clean energy. It's the biggest action Congress has ever taken to battle the problem. David Kiva is president of EDF Action. That's an advocacy partner of the Environmental Defense Fund. David, thanks for being with us. So if this measure becomes law, uh, what would it do to help the climate? It would, I mean, it, it, first of all, thank you for having me on this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you. It would have a transformative effect on climate change. Um, we made a commitment, the United States made a commitment to the rest of the world that we would try to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by the year 2030. Um, 2030 used to feel a long time away, but we feel fierce urgency in it since it's already 2022. So we're really only talking about less than, than eight years to really change our, our behavior patterns in, in this country in order to keep climate change from being worse and, and impacting us even even more. So um, our international our national commitment to an international goal to tackle the climate crisis is 50% reduction by 2030. This package alone will help us, according to Senator Schumer's estimate, get 40% of the way there. Um, so it does four-fifths of what we need it to, and then we've got to find a way to make up the other 10%, but making up that other 10% will be well within range and, and well within our ability. Um, you mentioned in your really generous introduction of me that it was a big spending package. I want to talk about some of the mechanics of it, if that's all right, um, because it's at most of this bill, it does have a big number attached to it, but most of this bill is not, in fact, new spending. It's new tax cuts and tax credits that are targeted at driving down costs for American families on one of the most expensive things that we all spend money on, which is getting around and uh, keeping the power on, keeping the air conditioning on. Um, it's going to change the have a transformative impact on what American families pay for energy. Um, the best estimates of a, a similar package previously was that it would reduce by the year 2030 the average American family's home energy cost by about $500 a year. Um, and the faster we get Americans in electric vehicles and the faster we drive down the cost of electric vehicles so that they are closer to parity with uh, cars that are powered by an internal combustion engine, the sooner Americans will, will realize savings there. Yeah, you want to incentivize people. What, what is it past just the cars? Because those are what we're familiar with. Are there other credits? Are there other incentives to, to try and do like a more holistic thing? Absolutely. Um, and there are huge investments in environmental justice as well. I think there's about $60 billion worth of, of investment that is specifically targeted towards achieving environmental justice, which is something that's important to me and something that's important to us at, at EDF Action. Some of the biggest tax credits that are in there are not necessarily pointed directly at consumers, at the end users. They're pointed at um, our power companies and utilities 
to help change the way that they think about what um, fuels power their energy mix that they pass along to, to consumers. So the changes within the energy sector and the power sector of our economy are every bit as transformative as the, the changes in the automotive sector, both of which are roughly on parity for, for how much they contribute to climate change. So, so let me ask you this, because I'm kind of by nature a suspicious guy. Uh, this was a measure that was uh, approved, given a stamp of approval by Senator Manchin, who, as you know, has been fighting tooth and nail for his constituents, which happens to be big energy, and thus far had thwarted just about every attempt to do stuff that would help the environment at the expense of his constituents. The fact that he's now going along with this, what is being left out that made him okay with saying okay? There are a couple of things that he specifically asked for that seem to have been addressed here, and I'll stick with cars if that's okay. Um, first of all, he was pretty consistent going back a very long time. He went back to January after he was largely responsible for walking away from um, the president's broader legislative agenda, which the president had called Build Back Better, and said, you know, one area where I think we could find a lot of common ground is on climate and energy. So maybe we should just do that. Um, at, at, at the end of the day, that comment, um, I think so far, at least we're not over the finish line yet. It hasn't been voted on, seems to be correct and, and seems to be accurate. Um, a couple of the specific concessions that were made to accommodate him was, I think he had a perception, uh, either personally or on behalf of his constituents in West Virginia, that all luxury, all electric vehicles were sort of a, a luxury product that were out of reach for most of, of his constituents. So the tax credits for electric vehicles are capped at certain levels. I think for cars, it's, uh, it, they, they wouldn't apply to a car that, whose uh, sticker price was over 55000 And for trucks, because the F-150 Lightning is proving so popular, it costs a little bit more, the cap is a little bit higher. Um, there's also an income cap applied to it. So if you make over $150,000 a year, um, you're not going to get the tax credit. Um, or if your family makes over $300,000 a year, you're not going to be eligible for that tax credit. Okay, yeah, because you, know. you can go afford it anyway. Uh, David Kiva, president of EDF Action, advocacy partner of the Environmental Defense Fund. David, thanks. Coming up, one type of cosmetic surgery growing in popularity, but... But it could lift you to your or leave you to your death, and we get into wearing masks in L.A. County. Right now, though, Russia has been focusing its military activities mostly on the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine. Until today, launched missile strikes on the Kiev area and another region for the first time in weeks. Journalist Phil Idner back with us from Kiev. Sirens woke him up uh, earlier. Phil, thanks for being here. So had it been a bit of a break before you heard those again uh, earlier this morning? Yeah, we hadn't been hit, and I think uh, it was, I think it's five weeks since we've had uh, missile strikes in the uh, capital region. Uh, They weren't downtown, uh, but nevertheless, we did get the alarm sirens at least twice overnight last night. You know, I'm curious. Uh, I was reading, I think it was a New York Times piece uh, just the other day about how, despite everything that's going on in Ukraine, nightlife is kind of returning to at least Kiev, and younger people are going out and they're... The socializing and they're going drinking and partying. If that's accurate, 
when you get an event like this latest attack, what does that do to that? Does everybody sort of go, oh, we got to go back in, I don't know, in hiding? Or do they just at this point go, yeah, it's kind of what we expect. Life goes on. Yeah, it, 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 sadly, um, bittersweet, actually. Uh, yeah, people are kind of resolved to it now. They're, they're, it's just part of life. Um, the, 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 I'm a little too old to, uh, be going out, uh, to, uh, the, the dancing and, um, nightclubs and what have you, but, uh, uh, you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're as old as you feel, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it is, I mean, I'm not surprised at all at that article. A lot of my friends and colleagues have, have been sending that to me and I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. The resilience of the Ukrainian people is astounding. They, they really, uh, one yes, they absolutely are still very much like we're gonna. This is now part of our lives. We're gonna go about living our lives um, regardless of of the threat. I mean, for a California, I suppose it would be kind of like earthquake, earthquakes. Uh, you know, we kind of you, you just adapt to them. Um, and it's it's sad that it's come to that, but it's some in some ways it's also heartening the fact that they just won't be stopped. Um, but, uh, the, the attacks, uh, that we had in the last, uh, few hours in the last 24 hours, the last, I don't know, 18 hours, whatever it was, uh, I think are uh, primarily related to a new holiday that's been insta- uh, instituted here in Ukraine. Um, you know, president Volodymyr Zelensky, um, has called for a, a new holiday to be called, uh, the, uh, day of Ukrainian statehood, and it's really directed at, at Russia. And uh, I don't think I, I think, as we see so often with the Russians, this was not a strategic attack, but rather a symbolic one, and, a, and, a, and a, uh, an attack that was meant to send a message um, against this holiday that, that Zelensky has kind of championed. Um, but nevertheless, Ukrainians were out on the streets today, and they were celebrating the fact that they are independent. Uh, and not part of a union with uh, with Russia, and um, I have no doubt in my mind that those attacks were were a result of this holiday. Every few days when we get the news out, it says um, you know Russia is uh, still pushing in the Donbass. They've made a new push. They made a new one. Are the gains still limited? I mean, are we kind of where we have been for the last few weeks? Well, things are pretty much static in the Donbass itself, and uh, the Russians are saying that their forces are are taking a breather, that they're, after they made some successes uh, on the eastern side of the river, that they're now kind of uh, regrouping, rearming, ready for further fights, while the Ukrainians uh, say that they are continuing to attack with the, the use of uh, U.S. weaponry, most notably the HIMARS system, which allows them to hit well, well beyond Russian lines, and they've been focusing on uh, ammo depots and that kind of thing. But down south, away from the Donbass, we have seen um, Ukrainian counteroffensives around a town called Kherson, which is strategically important because that's where the fresh water for the all-important um, uh Crimean Peninsula are located. So um, the, the Russians have made their gains in the Donbass, but now have settled in to consolidate. But the Ukrainians now are conducting counteroffensives in the southern part of eastern uh, Ukraine and are um, making slow gains uh, around Kherson, including cutting off a lot of soldiers um, because they're destroying their escape route um, by collapsing some bridges. Uh, but the Ukrainian gains are not 
you know, notably significant. They're not they're not massive gains of territory, but um, whether or not the pendulum is swinging back towards the momentum of, for, uh, that supports the Ukrainians, it's it's way too early to say. Phil Itner back with us from Kiev. Phil, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Latest economic numbers are out shows the economy still shrinking second straight quarter of an economic decline. That meets one definition of the dreaded R-word, recession. However, the White House has pushed back, saying there are other factors involved. President Biden earlier today discussed the big spending plan in Congress, saying it doesn't sound like a recession to him. Joe Fopiano is president and CEO at O'Brien Wealth Partners. Joe, thanks for being with us. Uh, we're going to give you the final say, recession or not. <laughs> what, what are <laughs> Congratulations. you saying? Yeah, it's all up to you. Are we in a recession or are we not? Well, as, uh, as I would say, it, it really depends. And what it depends on is whether you're looking for a technical definition of a recession or if you're... Um, if you're looking at whether the economy is supporting how a recession normally operates. But, but I have a question, though. Uh, when, when people and I've heard that a lot about, you know, well, it depends on whether you use the technical definition. But isn't there a, isn't there a technical definition for a reason that the technical de- de- definition it's is the there? Definition. Cause it's the definition. <laughs> it's like, you know, the tech, the technical definition of being dead is you're dead. So, <laughs> you know, if there's a technical definition, why would it not mean a recession? Well, it's true. There is a technical uh, definition, but the the two quarters of negative GDP, which is widely thought of as being the definition of a recession, is actually a widely held misconception. So it's actually the National Bureau of Economic Research that's the official arbiter of recessions. And they use several other factors, including income, employment, spending and production over a more protracted period before they state that a recession actually um, has happened, because oftentimes they don't declare it until after it until has begun and over. sometimes yeah. after it's ended. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the employment piece, because that's what the White House has been pointing to. They're saying, hey, you know, other times this has happened, we haven't been having these job gains. So do they score a point on that one? Absolutely. Uh, We created 2.75 million jobs during the quarter, and we have currently approximately uh, 10 million jobs for 5.9 million workers. So typically during a recession, you see mass layoffs. Right now, we're still seeing wage increases. We're seeing wage inflation. It doesn't look at all like a typical recession. Uh, but, but that's an interesting word, too, about typical. Uh, I mean, is it possible that because we're dealing with a situation where we've had a what once in a in a hundred year pandemic coupled with a an invasion of a Western European country by Russia uh, and, and the stifling pretty much of a lot of world trade related to that? Could it be that we're just not in a typical situation and the textbooks haven't caught up? Yeah, I I would say that there's no typical when it comes to recessions. So there's no textbook recession, if you will. But we certainly are in a situation that we've never been in before in terms of global pandemic and everything else that you listed. So there really is no boilerplate that we can apply to this. But, But if you look at the numbers and sort of the severity of the decline, 
it's pretty mild and pretty minor. Um, and when you when you take that in context with the job growth and with uh, industrial production and with the fact that people are still spending and corporate profits are still coming in strong, it's hard to envision a very deep and very severe type of recession. There's also the real people measure, though, right? I mean, the economists are going to argue it out. But if you go out, do the man on the street thing and say, hey, how you feel about the economy? It's not great. I mean, gas prices came down a little bit. Yay. But I go to the grocery store and I'm still getting hit there. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's definitely true. And people feel it in their pocketbooks, for sure. And if you look at groceries and energy in particular, they've been particularly hard hit by inflation. The Fed, however, is very committed and has been very explicit about being committed to fighting inflation. It's the top priority that they have. And they're willing to tip the economy towards recession, if not into it, to, to fight inflation. And you have to believe that with that, uh, with that willingness, they also don't envision a recession to be very deep and very protracted. Jill Fopiano, President and CEO, O'Brien Wealth Partners. Every so often, uh, plastic surgery comes uh, popular, becomes popular, like, you know, nose jobs, facelifts, implants. Now something called the Brazilian butt lift is the new big thing. Yeah, these can actually be deadly in some circumstances. A group of leading clinical plastic surgery societies found uh, in 2017 it had the highest death rates for any cosmetic surgery. With us is Dr. Sean Sauté, a cosmetic surgeon in Beverly Hills, specializes in body cosmetic surgery. Doctor, thanks for being here. So these have been popular for, for a little while, right? And they're they're still as dangerous as, as they ever were? They have been, but a lot of the danger has actually come with uh, inexperience. So um, before I even get into that, uh, BBL in general is, I think, something that we should go over and what it is and how it's performed. And that'll kind of give us a little bit, little bit better of an idea of why it's dangerous. Take us through it. So a BBL procedure involves liposculpting at first to extract fat or remove fat from different areas of the body. For example, your abdomen, your back, your flanks. And then once that fat is removed, we start thinking about where are we going to inject this fat? And oftentimes, nowadays, most of my patients want to have larger buttocks or have a you know smaller hip and larger waist, so a bigger hip-to-waist ratio. And that's kind of been popularized more and more by TikTok and what we see with our celebrities. Now... The problem with this is that a lot of patients go out of the country or go to areas that the surgeons aren't as experienced or don't have the familiarity with the anatomy and find themselves getting into trouble or hairy situations. Why would it be uh, particularly, as you put it, a hairy situation? What, What could go wrong? A lot can, actually. So the feared complication from this is getting a pulmonary embolus, um, or in other words, a clot to the main vessels of the lungs, which could be catastrophic and lead to death. And how would that happen? Is it that you're injecting not in the perfect spot, or, or what are the complications exactly. when you're just kind of so, like, let's put it here and hope for the best? <laughs> so oftentimes, that's actually part of it. So a lot of it's inexperience with the anatomy. Um, for example, you never want to put fat within the the muscular layer of the buttock or even anything below that. The reason being is because the veins that drain the the natural blood flow from the legs and the buttock, that drain into your natural anatomy going towards your heart and your lungs are there. So if you inject fat into the muscles, some of those uh, little small fat molecules or adipocytes can cause a pulmonary embolus. So a great safeguard to this is thoroughly knowing your anatomy and where you're injecting 
And in my practice, we employ a lot of different modalities, such as ultrasound-guided technologies that really allow us to visualize where our devices are when we're injecting this fat. So how does a patient know that they're going to somebody who knows what they're doing? By doing their research. So a lot of it is by doing their homework, asking for their credentials, um, asking their surgeon, how many patients have you performed this procedure on before? What's your complication rate? Have you ever had any patients that have had some sort of issue with fat grafting or issues in general when it comes to their surgery? Would someone know and be able to do something about it within the course of, what, a couple days after having this done if something's not going right? I mean, how do you figure that out or do do you see it? Well, oftentimes, when it comes down to actually a pulmonary embolus, you'll actually notice that on table. So it's rare to see it several days after. A lot of these mortalities, for example, that you hear in patients that have had it in Florida, um, they all happen on table where the patients will essentially have vascular compromise and blood flow issues and could potentially die on the table. So that's why it really, really becomes important to go to someone that has a lot of experience with these types of procedures, specifically with Brazilian butt lifts and specifically with fat transfers. Do you think that a lot of patients don't fully grasp the notion that cosmetic surgery is still surgery and does carry, no matter how good the doctor might be, inherent risks? Absolutely. So that's another huge thing that is very, very important that I actually go through with all of my patients beforehand. So a lot of it is understanding what your patient's limitations are as far as their body is concerned, making making sure that your patients are as well optimized for surgery as possible. Uh, making sure that their heart and their lung function is up to par, making sure that they're not the extremes of age, making sure their laboratory tests are all up to par as well. They don't have any history of clotting issues or coagulation problems. So a lot of these things really fall on the onus of not only the cosmetic surgeon or plastic surgeon, but also whatever doctor is clearing these patients for surgery as well. Because although they are cosmetic surgeries, these are real surgeries. These are real procedures you're still being put to sleep for these. Yeah, because there's there's achievable, like, yeah, we can do it, and then there's safe and achievable. I mean, people want the hourglass. That's always been a thing. But now they want, like, the hourglass with the Kim Kardashian, and that's not always realistic. Of course it's not. And, you know, you'd be surprised at how many patients I actually end up turning away and letting them know that they're re- either they're A, their real expectations aren't realistic, or B, they're not the best candidate for surgery. And the problem is that a lot of places where some patients will go, if you shop around enough, you will find a surgeon that will do whatever you want, even though it's not the best thing for you. So it's really understanding who your surgeon is when, when you're choosing. I'm curious, what is the sort of, if there is such a thing as a normal reaction, what's the normal reaction of of one of your patients if you have to turn them down? Because obviously they come to you with all these expectations and they're probably pretty excited and I guess they have the money as well. And and then to be told, no, you you can't, it can't be done the way you want it or it can't be done at all. How do they react to that? Well, some of them actually uh, react pretty uh, appropriately. Um, You know, I always tell my patients why I don't think they're a candidate. For example, if a patient comes to me and they're fairly, fairly thin and they have minimal to zero fat, meaning their their body mass index or their overall fat ratio is less than 5%, I'll tell them that you're not a candidate for liposculpting because there is no fat to be removed. And I'll explain to them what their other options are. Sometimes some patients are reasonable, sometimes they are not. And you know, you try your very best to explain to them, you know, the ins and outs of what the procedures are and what the risks are, and then you just, that's it. 
It is what it is. All right, Dr. Sean Sate, cosmetic surgeon in Beverly Hills. Doctor, thanks. More in-depth on the way. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Sesame Street's long known for diversity, inclusivity, but you wouldn't know it if you read a new class action lawsuit. It's alleging the theme park Sesame Place Philadelphia and its employees have discriminated against and insulted black guests. There's even video that seems to support that claim. Malcolm Ruff is the attorney representing a man who is leading this lawsuit. Malcolm, thanks for being with us. Hey, Mike and Charles, thank you so much for bringing us on and greetings to all of you on the West Coast. So tell us a little bit about what your client's case is. So we have filed a federal civil rights class action lawsuit against SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, who are the parent company of Sesame Place, uh, Philadelphia. I know there's another Sesame Place in San Diego and also one in Florida. We're dealing with uh, a, a theme park and amusement park right outside of Philadelphia, and you may have seen, many folks have seen, and it's been viral, the videos that have come out of uh, out of eastern Pennsylvania of young black children uh, being utterly disappointed, dismayed uh, from being ignored and disregarded uh, by costume character actors at Sesame Place. Uh, and in the same turn, those same actors, in many instances, engaging with white children as if the black children were not even there. Is this is this linked to, right to that video? Because you're right. I mean, so many people saw it. And it was national news, and, and we've talked about it. Uh, is this linked directly to that video, or is that kind of, in your eyes, like a supporting thing? So that's a separate case, um, but I think it was the impetus that caused our client to contact us. Um, obviously, we saw it, um, and then once we, we obtained a client in, in Mr. Mr. Burns and his daughter, Kennedy, um, we went right into action because – we knew something had to be done, that the trigger needed to be pulled and a legal action needed to be filed in order to show uh, SeaWorld that, you know, somebody was going to stand up for the rights, the fundamental civil rights of young black children. So we filed a claim under Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And, and if you remember, in the Reconstruction era, uh, the government had to ensure that black folks uh, had protections because they had not been regarded as full citizens. And so even till today, uh, we, have, we have to use these laws because even today, uh, there is still no respect for black babies, even at an amusement park designed uh, for uh, black, little children. I, I'm curious, your, your client, Mr. Burns, his, his daughter, uh, how old? Kennedy is five years old, and I have a five-year-old daughter myself, and I see my daughter in this young girl. She is uh, so precious, so innocent, um, and it was just a complete tragedy that she had to experience racism for the first time at five years old. If you look at the video of Kennedy's incident, uh, there are two specific um, times where one of the characters, one of them being Ernie from Sesame Street and the other being Telly Monster, uh, come over, greet other young white children, and leave Kennedy hanging with her hand in the air and her face showing clear disappointment. Hmm. Um, it, it, her father says that every time he watches it, it makes him want to cry. And hmm. I can understand, uh, you know, having been, uh, you know, I, I being a father, having a young child, a young black girl uh, as my daughter, um, I, I completely understand where he's coming from. And so many other families across America are calling us today. We have had an influx of numerous people with complaints 
uh, telling us and showing us video of how they've been marginalized and how that made them feel. And it's a shame that all the way from 1866 until today, uh, we still have to fight this battle for the basic fundamental rights of black people. Malcolm Ruff, the attorney representing a man uh, who's leading this, this class action suit. Uh, Malcolm, thanks for talking to us. Um, statement from Sesame Place says we will review the lawsuit on behalf of Mr. Burns. We look forward to addressing the claim through the established legal process committed to deliver an inclusive, equitable and entertaining experience for all the guests. And I'm also just told that there will be no mask mandate uh, for L.A. County. When we come back, we will get into that. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, as we mentioned, L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer has just announced the county will not, not be moving forward with the indoor mask mandate. She cited declining case and hospital numbers in her decision not to move forward with the mandate, though she is still strongly suggesting that people wear masks. With us is Dr. Angelique Campen, ER doctor at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank, clinical professor at UCLA. Doctor, thanks for being here. So we're going to dig into this, obviously. But first off, just the reaction to this news that no, uh, the mask mandate is not coming back, at least for now. Well, I agree with her decision. Um, The times that we're having right now with COVID are very different than what we saw a year or two years ago. COVID, although very, very contagious, uh, is not overwhelming or burdening our healthcare system like it was before. And thus, it's an individual choice whether you uh, are more medically vulnerable and need to wear a mask or not. Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, uh, for example, a lot of uh, senior citizens and, and patients, and I'm sure you have some maybe, who are immunocompromised feel like they're kind of being left behind in this, that it's good to say, well, it's everyone's choice, but if they want to go to a supermarket or they want to go to and enjoy a movie, uh, they feel that they can't because the people around them may have chosen not to wear a mask. Yes, that is true. Um, But wearing a mask personally does offer you some protection from the people around you. And you can choose more safe um, types of entertainment outdoor and so forth. But but yes, it 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 is a decision that's made for many. Do you think had we done this, that the will to actually make it happen was not there? I mean, we saw pushback already coming from certain cities and a whole bunch of people. And then Pasadena and Long Beach, their own health departments were making their own decisions, saying, well, you know what, we're not going to. So L.A. County uh, proper would have been the only place up and down this state that would have had this. I, I did have some concern that if the mask mandate were put in place, that people would not um, that, that people would fight against it and not follow it. Uh, I think that. um It has become very politically charged right now, but also um, people that are concerned about their health, um, that are vulnerable, are making the choice to wear their mask now, uh, whether there's a mandate or not. And those who are who who feel that they are not at risk are not wearing the mask. But isn't it also the case that, for example, with a lot of younger people, that they may feel that they don't need to wear a mask because they figure, well, if we get COVID, 
it's not going to be that big a deal. And maybe in terms of the symptoms they get, it won't be. But then again, there are many, many cases, and the literature does show that, right, that, that people who have had even asymptomatic COVID, even young people with that, have gone on to have long COVID because nobody really knows why some people get it and some don't. So there's a risk for those people as well when it comes to a decision whether to wear a mask or not, isn't there? That is very true. And that's why, um, you know, I choose to do my best to avoid catching it. Um, the The risk right now, fortunately, is um, is not that it it is necessarily going to attack your lungs and put you in the ICU and have you die. But more likely, it is exacerbating underlying health issues. So for example, if you have diabetes, it tends to throw your diabetes out of control. If you have uh, kidney problems, it, it puts a stress on your kidney function. And as far as long COVID, that is still a mystery as to who is going to develop long COVID symptoms and who is not. Curious if you think... We only have so much ammunition for this, going back to that public will to do it. And if we're going to do it, maybe winter is the time. And that's when to have this discussion, because this has been previously mentioned, even among some of the supervisors, um, like, hey, if we get another variant or if this is spreading again uh, at even higher levels in the fall into the winter, then that's when we're really going to need it when we're all inside together. That is true. And that's also when... um we have other viruses together with COVID that we have to worry about, such as influenza. Uh, There's concern that catching both of them at the same time may end up being uh, put, making you very, very sick. Um, So that is, that is my concern about the fall. Uh, I am relieved though, that the, the COVID variant now has morphed into one that doesn't attack the lungs and thus we're not seeing a strain on our on our hospitals, on our healthcare system. It is uh, mostly putting a strain on the workforce, and it keeps people out of work for five to ten days, and sometimes longer. You mentioned about the protection uh, of one person wearing a mask just for their own benefit. How protective is it? Well, you catch viruses uh, through your mucous membranes mostly. So that's why we stress keeping your hands clean and not touching your face or your eyes or your nose. Um, But wearing a mask protects your nose and your mouth mucous membranes from the droplets that come out from another person's breath. Um, Your eyes are not protected by a mask, but it does offer you some protection. Since we were mentioning the fall, let's look ahead a little bit with the time we have remaining. What do you tell people when they're curious and they're wondering and they're overwhelmed, frankly, about what to do about booster shots and whether they should get this fourth one if they're eligible or even, you know, creeping up to the line of being eligible? Or do I wait? If there's something else coming, don't I want that one? Can I get two so close together? All that stuff. I mean, what do you tell people? Because it's, it's hard to figure out. So uh, getting the fourth shot, the second booster, does not preclude you from getting yet another um, variation of the vaccine when it does get released that will likely be more effective against the current variant. My opinion is the formulation of the vaccine right now 
is not offering a whole lot of protection against this current variant. And that is why you've seen just in the last three to four months, the the final few that are that were fully immunized finally came down with COVID um, because the vaccine was no longer offering that kind of protection. Um, my, my advice, though, to people is if it's time for your second booster, there is no harm in going ahead and getting it. Um, and when the, the new one is available, you can still get that one. It will not preclude you from getting it. Dr. Angelique Campen, ER doctor, Providence St. Joseph, and Burbank clinical professor, UCLA. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.